Hi, this is Jerry Britt, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's Sunday, August 20th, and this is your Sunday sermon. Last week, we started our new sermon series called Lessons from Nehemiah, and we talked about Nehemiah's process of prayer. Today, in part two, we'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter two, verses one to 20, and we'll talk about tools and tasks. But before we get there, let's take a moment and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we worship you, we love you, and we are grateful for you. Lord, teach us today from your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I was doing a little research online this week, and I came across some lines from actual resumes. These are some of them. It's best for employers if I not work with people. I'm not a perfectionist, but rarely, if, if ever, forget details. I have become completely paranoid, trusting completely no one and absolutely nothing. Instrumental in ruining entire operation for a Midwest chain store. Finished eighth in my class of ten. References? None. I've left a path of destruction behind me. Now, Nehemiah had a pretty impressive resume, and instead of leaving a path of destruction behind him, he was about to tackle the path of destruction in front of him. His resume would include the following accomplishments. Cupbearer to the king for many years. Great job stability as long as no one tried to poison the boss. Served in the court and was well-connected with the power brokers of Persia. Under the section of his resume where he listed personal information, you'd see this. I'm concerned about problems. I have a strong conviction about God's character. I confess my sins on a regular basis. I have confidence in God's promises, and I have a commitment to get involved. This is actually a summary of what we learned last week in chapter 1 as we focused on the process of prayer. As we move into chapter 2, I wonder how many of you completed your assignment to read that trilogy of Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah this past week. Now, I'm not going to ask you to respond by leaving a comment here, but I'll even give you a one-week extension. It's really important, and I encourage you to complete this homework because it'll help you get more out of this series. Again, in this order, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Now, that's not the order in your Bible. You'll have Ezra first, then Nehemiah, and then Esther. But the books actually were written Esther first, then Ezra, and Nehemiah in terms of their chronological periods. Now, before we jump into the text, let me remind you of how the book of Nehemiah fits into Old Testament history. Nehemiah did not rely on his resume when it was time to build. He got out his tools so that he could handle the tasks ahead of him. In verses 1 through 10 today, we're going to see that he had at least five tools in his toolbox. And in verses 11 through 20, we'll look at the five tasks that he tackled. That's how I came to the sermon title, Tools and Tasks. Let's talk about tools. My dad was really handy with tools. He had quite a shop filled with lots of hand and power tools. He was self-taught and he learned how to be quite a craftsman. He passed on a lot of what he knew to me for which I'm always going to be grateful. And through the years, I've also built up a nice selection of tools. But as I get older, I'm not able to do what I used to do. So I've given some of those tools to my sons. And they too have developed really nice sets of tools for themselves far beyond what I have. And they both are really handy. At this point, I just sit back and watch them, and occasionally I get to hand them a tool upon request. Nehemiah had a lot of tools as well. 
As I said moments ago, he had at least five tools in his toolbox he uses in verses 1 through 10. Let's talk about that. The first tool Nehemiah used was the tool called waiting. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 reads, Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Nehemiah was a man of decisive action, and when he prayed, it was natural for him to ask God to provide an early, if not immediate, opportunity to speak to the king. Remember last week at the closing verse of chapter 1, Nehemiah said, Please grant me success today for making the king favorable to me. He waited patiently on the Lord for an answer, just as we're urged to do in Hebrews 6.12, which says, Follow the example of those who were going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Nehemiah could weep and pray and could also wait and pray. Have you had to wait for God to ever answer a prayer for you? In Nehemiah's prayer journal, nothing was entered for four months because nothing happened. Friends, waiting time is not wasted time. Quiet reflection may have provided Nehemiah with fresh insight about how to approach the king. God wants each of us to get real familiar with this tool. We're going to have to use it a lot. The second tool Nehemiah fished out of his toolbox was called trusting. Look at verses 2 and 3. Nehemiah was sad in the last part of verse 1, and this word is used three other times to describe how he looked when it was used in this present verse here, verse 2, when he goes into the presence of the king. The king asked him a question to find out why Nehemiah was not his usual chipper self. Nehemiah wigged out when Artaxerxes asked him this question because he knew the king only wanted to be around happy people. At the end of verse 2, Nehemiah says, Then I was terrified, which can literally be translated, a terrible fear came over me. I think he was very much afraid for at least two reasons. He knew that he was expected to be perfectly content just to be in the presence of the king. Subjects who were sad or melancholy around the king were usually executed for reigning on his parade. Second, he was about to ask the king of the Persian Empire to reverse a written policy that he had made several years earlier about Jerusalem's reconstruction. This edict was recorded in Ezra chapter 4 verse 21 and said, Therefore, issue orders to have these men stop their work. That city must not rebuild except by my expressed command. Nehemiah knew it would take the power of God to get Artaxerxes to change his mind. I think I'd be afraid too. Friend, what are you afraid of today? Some of you might be afraid of the past. You're worried that something you did long ago will catch up to you. Maybe you're afraid of the present and you find yourself crippled by the fear of people, snakes, or confined spaces. Others of you might be fearful about the future or even death. In the best-selling book, Who Moved My Cheese?, the author points out that fear often keeps us from taking the steps we know we need to take. Fear can paralyze us. Fortunately, Nehemiah's faith was greater than his fear. He did the right thing because he believed the promises of God. Notice what happened in verse 2. Again, he said, I was terrified. But then in verse 3, but I replied. So he's terrified and then he replies. Instead of paralyzing him, fear propelled him to action. Months of prayer had prepared him for these crucial minutes. Courage filled him when he realized he couldn't hide his grief any longer. Then using wisdom, he affirms his boss by saying in verse 3, Long live the king. Then he continues and explains why he was sad. He said, How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Did you notice something really special here? 
Nehemiah never mentions the name of the city. Jerusalem's history of independence might have turned the king's thoughts toward questions of politics, even national security. But instead of going political, he chose the personal route. That's usually the better choice. What Nehemiah was saying basically to the king was that he wanted to honor the burial place of his fathers. This made a lot of sense to the king because the Persians honored their dead as well. Nehemiah's fear could have led him to be timid. Instead, he was using the tool of trusting very effectively. Because next in verses 4 and 5, Nehemiah pulls out yet another well-used tool. Let's talk about that. That's the tool of praying. Verse 4 begins with a direct question from the king. Well, how can I help you? Before answering the king of Persia, Nehemiah needed to speak briefly with the king of heaven. I love this. The text says, with a prayer to the God of heaven. This had to be a really short prayer. There wasn't any time between the time the king asks and Nehemiah answers is just mere seconds. And so he's got to get an answer. But I love the fact that it says, with a prayer to the God of heaven. I picture him sending up like an arrow prayer that goes up really fast or a lightning bolt prayer or a six shooter prayer, as I've heard it referred to. Or in contemporary lingo, it's like instant messaging with God. He obviously didn't have the time to drop to his knees or even bow his head. If he had done that, the king would have suspected treason. His emergency prayer was backed up with four months of fasting and intercession. He was ready for that. And this is encouraging to me. You and I can pray at any time, in any place, by sending up a quick prayer to God. Right before we have to give an answer to our boss, or before responding to our spouse, or when disciplining our kids, or when looking for a way to impact our neighbors for Christ, just shoot up a prayer. It doesn't have to be long or even audible. We need to make good use of these chance moments to send up these quick prayers to God. I'm convinced that this is the only way we're going to fulfill 1 Thessalonians 5.17 when we're challenged to never stop praying. The next tool Nehemiah used is called planning. Let's look at verses 5 through verse 8a. Nehemiah has lifted his heart to God. Now he must open his mouth to the king. He practiced both dependent praying and deliberate planning. This is good for us to hear. Some people think that all you have to do is pray. Others focus almost exclusively on planning. It shouldn't be an either-or, but a both-or-and deal. And we're called to pray and plan, to worship and work, to make requests and to fill out requisitions. Let's read verses 5 through 7. They say, I replied, If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, If it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. Notice that he knew how to answer the king's questions. He anticipated the question related to how long his journey was going to take. So when the king asked, Nehemiah gave him a time frame. He also knew how to plan the dangerous journey by asking for letters on the king's stationery, which would give him safe passage through those difficult territories he came across. Now, he didn't stop there. Look at verse 8. We see that here he wanted permission to take some timber out of the king's own forest. In other words, he was not asking for a gift certificate to Lowe's. He did some research, and he knew that the keeper of the king's lumber yard was named Asaph. This forest was also called paradise in Hebrew and looked like a park filled with orchards. 
Nehemiah asked for and received three things from the king, permission, protection, and provisions. The final tool he pulled out of his toolbox was the tool of testifying. Look at verses 8b through 10. Nehemiah gave testimony to the goodness of God in answering his prayers, guiding his mind, directing his speech, and meeting his needs. Look at the last part of verse 8. It says, And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. Only God could have brought about such a dramatic change in the king's mind and the cupbearer's destiny. Nehemiah knew that what was taking place had everything to do with God's arranging and not human contriving. It's like what the psalmist said in Psalm 118.23. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. Nehemiah was meticulous in his planning, but it would not have been enough were it not for the Lord's perfect timing, constant guidance, and overruling provision. Take a look at verse 10. It introduces some bad guys. Now, I'll come back to them later. Suffice it to say that they cast a long shadow over this story. So now that we've taken these tools out of the toolbox, let's talk about the tasks for which they're to be used. I admired my dad for many things, but I was always amazed at how he seemed to know how to best tackle a job. He could look at a project and determine what needed to happen first. Sometimes he'd think about it for a while and even lay awake figuring everything out but he always knew the steps that needed to be taken before the project could be completed. Nehemiah was a master builder as well. As we move to the second half of chapter 2, we'll see that he tackled five tasks. The first task Nehemiah tackled was to replenish his resources. Look at verse 11. When Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, he could appreciate why his brother Hanani was so bummed out. As he looked at the city's shattered walls and useless gates, he was overwhelmed. But before he could examine them more closely, there was a greater priority. Nehemiah needed a nap. The journey of four months took its toll on Nehemiah. He was probably suffering from camel lag. Ezra did the same thing when he arrived in Jerusalem many years earlier when he rested for three days. Just as Elijah needed rest under the juniper tree and Jesus withdrew with his disciples for rest, so too you and I need to make sure we replenish our resources on a regular basis. Here's a biblical principle. Don't try to make major decisions when you're tired. I know that when I'm short on sleep, I'm not usually very sharp, and I've been known to be sometimes a little bit crabby. Sometimes I need to just wait until the next morning to tackle something. After getting recharged, the next task Nehemiah tackled was to assess the need. Look at verses 12 to 16. Nehemiah knew that in order to lead this project, he would need a first-hand picture of what was to be done. Then he scouted out the damage to the walls one dark night. With the moonlight showing the mounds of broken stone and demolished gates, Nehemiah made some notes to himself. Now, I'm going to read these verses for you. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, just past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So, though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. This moonlight journey is one of the most dramatic scenes in this book. 
I think Nehemiah discovered at least three things as he did his assessment. First, I think he discovered this was a demanding job. The circuit of walls was more than a mile long, and the new wall needed to be three or four feet thick and 15 to 20 feet high. This was not going to be easy, but Nehemiah knew that he and his people had to give it their best. The same is true for us. Kingdom work is demanding, but it's worth our energy. Second, it was a hazardous assignment. Nehemiah went at night because there were enemies lurking around. He said nothing to anyone until the time was right. The careless leakage of information might bring the work to an end even before it gets started. And lastly, it was a cooperative venture. It was only by surveying the walls and gates that Nehemiah could calculate how the work should be divided. After replenishing his resources and assessing the need, the third task Nehemiah took on was recruiting workers. Look at verse 17. In some way not mentioned in the narrative, Nehemiah gathered together a large group of prospective partners. Let's look and see how he put his workforce together. First, he identifies with the workers. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we're in. Nehemiah is passionately involved in the city's welfare and feels its need as acutely as though he'd been living there in this desolate city all his life. Next, he presents spiritual perspectives. They are in trouble, and it's not just because Jerusalem lies in ruin. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. He sees the people's spiritual disgrace. The sight of those collapsed walls for well over a century has created the impression in the pagan mind that the God of Israel has abandoned his people. He recognizes there are always spiritual issues involved. A building project is more than just brick and mortar. As his people, we have to be aware of the spiritual opportunities and challenges as they present themselves to us. Then he invites immediate action. Everyone knows exactly what's required. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace, he said. And everyone realized that the task must begin without further delay. Nehemiah is asking a lot of the people. He's not afraid to ask them to step up to the plate. The sacrifices will be huge. They'll have to take time off from their work in order to rebuild the walls. Who's going to protect their families? Before people can respond, they need to know that there is someone greater than Nehemiah behind this project. And that leads to the next task, which is for Nehemiah to inspire confidence in the people. Look at verse 18. While rebuilding the walls was an important job, the central theme in the book is the sufficiency of God. Nehemiah's mind dwells on the greatness of God, and he wants his workers to do the same. Listen to Nehemiah's testimony in verse 18. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. He didn't reach Jerusalem because he was a skillful persuader or because the queen was possibly a compliant helper or because the king was a generous benefactor. It was only because God was a sovereign provider. Since God has done all that, he would certainly help them to complete the task of rebuilding the walls. By telling the people what God had already done, he was firing them up for what they were about to do. His appeal was positive as he focused on the glory and greatness of God. When you think about it, it's amazing that the people said, yes, let's rebuild the wall. I mean, think about what they could have said. They could have been apathetic. They'd been living in the rubble for a long time and could have just stayed there. They could have reminded Nehemiah that the Jews had already tried that before in Ezra chapter 4 and were stopped by the authorities. We often face those same two obstacles within the church. We're either content with the way things are or we tried that before and it didn't work. I'm thankful that Word of Hope Christian Church, where I have the opportunity to serve, responds much like the wall builders did in this chapter. 
Someone has defined leadership as the art of getting people to do what they ought to do because they want to do it. I'm proud to be their pastor, and I want to do all I can do to help us do the things we ought to do because we want to do them, because the gracious hand of our God is upon us. The fifth task comes almost immediately after the decision to make an impact takes place, and that is to handle opposition. Look at verses 19 and 20. Whenever we get serious about kingdom work, Satan will oppose us. The first two enemies had already been identified in verse 10. Now in verse 19, we find three more. It says, But when Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of the plan, there are your three names. These are very unscrupulous characters. In verse 10, the opponents are very much disturbed. Now this troublesome trio becomes highly vocal in their attacks on Nehemiah and his work crew. Let's look at their tactics. First, they mocked the efforts of the workers. Verse 19 says that they scoffed contemptuously. Verbal onslaughts have always been a part of the enemy's demoralizing attacks. They laughed at the workers and belittled both their resources and their plans. Next, they suggested that they were rebelling against the king. That weapon had worked once before in Ezra 4. Here, three men say, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? This was a cutting allegation to the timid workers. I love how Nehemiah deals with these bad guys. He doesn't answer their lies or engage in a conversation with them, nor does he just ignore them. He first exalts the God who called him to do the work in verse 20. The God of heaven will help us succeed. He wasn't concerned about their fictitious insinuations. He was concerned that God would get the glory in the project. Nehemiah wanted his people to know that God had everything in control. Even though Geshem the Arab controlled the southern approach to the city and the other two thugs patrolled the north and east, Nehemiah was not ruffled. In his reply, he made three things very clear. Rebuilding the wall was God's work. Number two, the Jews were God's servants. And number three, their opponents had no part in the matter. In fact, in the last part of verse 20, he says it rather strongly. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you, talking to these three guys, but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Let me just say that as believers, we should expect spiritual opposition and even be thankful for it. It's a sign that we've angered the enemy and encroached on some territory that he thinks is his. If there's no conflict or opposition, then we're probably not disturbing the enemy enough. Remember, Satan only shoots at moving targets. So let me bring this to a close. The tools are now out of the toolbox. Once again, they are waiting, trusting, praying, planning, and testifying. Are you ready to pick them up? Are you ready to start using them? It's not enough to just rely on your religious resume. And the tasks are ready to be tackled. Replenish your resources, assess the need, recruit workers, inspire confidence, and handle opposition. This is a continual commitment and a long-term task. God wants us fully engaged for the long haul. That reminds me of two guys in a pickup truck who drove into a lumber yard one day. One of the men walked into the office and said, we need some four by twos. The worker said, you mean two by fours, don't you? The man said, I need to check with my buddy. I'll be right back. When he came back, he said, yeah, that's what we need. I meant to say two by fours. The worker then said, all right, how long do you need them? The customer paused for a minute and said, I better go check. Then he came back in a few minutes and said, we need them for a long time. We're going to build a house with them. Folks, if we want to see God rebuild some things in our lives, we're going to need to rely on him and only him for a very long time. As Psalm 127.1 says, 
unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Beloved, we have our tools, we have our tasks, and thanks to the word of the Lord, we know how to tackle a tough job. So let's go! Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.